You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Welcome, listeners, to another edition of Shipwreck Tales. This week, we're looking at a large and long, graceful steamer by the name of the Alingamite, 1902, and it's wrecking on the Three Kings. Three Kings just off the northwest of Northland, and it's one of those stories that shows the full expression of uh, human reaction to these things, plenty of heroism and... As usual, plenty of great suffering and death at sea. Telling us of the shipwreck tale again, John McChrystal. Hi, John. G'day, Graham. How are you? Yeah, good. The Alingamite. It was a, a long, graceful, 100-metre-long steamer. Yeah, she's a biggie. 2,385 gross tonnes, in case that means anything to anyone. 98 metres long, or 320 feet, and 40 feet in the beam. So, yeah, she's a big, substantial vessel, and... Beautiful lines, actually. Great big, steep or vertical bow line, actually, and low in the waist and just a lovely-looking ship. Where was she sailing from? And most importantly, the passengers. How many and yeah, who? Well, yeah, last time we um, we talked about the Tararua and how she was doing a run from the Australian ports, the east coast of Australia, and then the east coast of New Zealand and then back to Australia. That's pretty much what the Alingabite was doing as well. She was in the same service. She sailed on the 5th of November 1902 with 136 passengers and 58 crew aboard. That's 194 people. She had a cargo. She had a mixed cargo. I haven't been able to determine exactly what that was, but it seemed to com comprise a whole bunch of fruit, a lot of spirits, as it turns out, in bottles, and 52 boxes of gold sovereigns, which has kept the the interest alive in the in the wreck long since she went down. Right, of course. Well, that's by the by and for treasure hunters, really. It's the human cost of this that is the compelling story. How did they run into the Three Kings? These, It's a small archipelago off the northeast of Northland, or northwest yeah, of Northland. It, that's right. What it comprises, really, when you look at it from a distance, as James Cook did when he named them, you see two substantial islands and what looked like a third island in the middle when you're viewing them from the south. In fact, that middle island is a chain of rocks really projecting from the sea called the Princess Islands. So it's an archipelago, as you say. There's one, one outlying to the west and there's so-called Big King, the more substantial island out to the, to the east. The Ilingamite was steaming along quite nicely. They'd had an uneventful crossing of the Tasman. They were in brisk westerlies which fell away on the morning of the 9th of November. At about 0900, they were proceeding at half speed in thick fog. 
And those who were in a position to see said that the captain was looking a bit nervous and a bit restless and was sort of pacing around his bridge and looking out at all points of the compass through his binoculars. So he clearly just felt a bit nervous about his position. He had some good sights the, the day before, so their position had been reasonably well determined about 12 hours beforehand. But yeah, no one likes to be steaming along in the fog. No. About 0900, there's a graphic description from one of the passengers who says, just suddenly the fog parted and she saw a line of breakers and an enormous cliff and she had time to remark to her husband, oh, look how close to the rocks we are. And then very shortly after that, uh, she struck at about 10.30 in the morning. Well, what a frightening sure. thing to have that fog lift all of a sudden and to find the peril that you're in just immediately in front of you. Yes, with absolutely nothing that you can do about it. Apparently the Alingamite bumped softly at first. There was a, a sort of a, a bump which is thought to have been the rail of the ship actually sliding across the cliff. And then there was an awful crash, and this was a ledge of rock underneath the surface, just ripping the after section of the, the hull out, the underneath of the hull out, uh, also taking out the propeller, most probably, and the rudder. Because the captain, as soon as he saw the cliffs, needless to say, he rang full astern. He wanted his engines going in reverse as quickly as they could manage, and the ship didn't respond. So nothing anyone could do. She just snacked into this submerged rock, ripped her bottom out, and within half an hour her deck was awash. So she sank very quickly after striking. What were the weather conditions? Paint the picture so we could have an idea of what it might be like on board. Very tall cliff. We've talked about a lot of these places where these ships have been wrecked, and yeah, disproportionate number of them seem to feature these towering cliffs. The Three Kings, I haven't been there, but it apparently is just a sheer... 800 foot high cliff and it's foggy one of the very experienced seamen aboard said that it was the thickest fog he could remember and yeah it's not cold but it's not exactly a pleasant day either mm. there's sort of a clammy mist accompanying the, the poor visibility what was the so, swell like yeah there was a moderate sea running from the southwest so yeah there's a in a place like that a moderate sea is is going to look pretty imposing when it's smacking onto these rocks and when you say the deck was awash does that mean the boat has gone down to deck level that's right so what they've done they've got everyone up on the deck and uh, the ship meanwhile is sinking beneath them the order to clear the boats and abandon ship was given pretty swiftly so everyone knew pretty much as soon as they struck that they were getting off that ship Apparently, order prevailed. In fact, several of the reports in the picturesque terms of the day said that the crew behaved as true British seamen, although it has to be said there was a passenger aboard who was a member of a group of probably Croatians, although the newspapers described them as Austrians. They were just people with funny accents, as far as you can tell. Croatia was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, so maybe that's the that's answer. That's right. Yeah. So, so yes, they, they become Austrians, I guess, by, by token of that. Yeah. Uh, and they all had Croatian names, so they're described as, as Austrians, but my guess is Croatians. Mm. They are supposed to have rushed the boats. In other words, they wanted to get aboard the boats as quickly as possible. Right. Whether that's true or not, I haven't found any corroboration from that, but one of the so-called Austrians himself said that the opposite was true. They uh, were milling around with the rest of the passengers, and in fact, everyone was being loaded except them, and they were being physically kept off the boats. Uh, uh, and then the captain, seeing this was ha happening, the cap Captain Atwood, I should mention his name, Captain Atwood ordered 
his crewmen to admit these Austrians to the boats. It is pretty plain that the women and children were loaded first and then the men, and pretty much everything was done in good order. How many boats? Yeah, there were six boats, and uh, there were, seemed to have been at least three rafts. So for once, there was enough flotation for everyone aboard. And this is just sort of entering the era when responsible ship owners were laying on enough mm. life-saving capacity to get everyone that the ship could theoretically carry off if the worst happened. Oh, we should describe how far off the Northland coast the Three Kings are. Yeah, I didn't take the precaution of looking, but I believe it's around the, it's around... 100 nautical miles, I think. Yeah, it's something uh, like that. So, it, it, yeah, yeah they're, they're just out of eyeshot, really. If you're up over North Cape in a helicopter, you can see them. On a fine day, you can just about make them out. But, yeah, yeah they're, they're a fair way off. Okay. And, of course, on a foggy day, there's no sight of any land except the bit they're rubbing up against, really. Yeah, yeah. And the wrecking itself, when the Olingamite struck the rocks, I understand caused the death of some passengers almost immediately. Yeah, those who got into the boats reported seeing at least half a dozen bodies in the water. I'm not clear how they died, but I presume some may have panicked and jumped overboard. Some may have been washed off because, after all, we've got the deck being swept by these breakers as the ship settles, and it's, yeah, not improbable that people were washed overboard. Mm. It's pretty clear that the first boat that got away did so in, in good order. Meanwhile, you had a stewardess, actually, by the name of Mrs McGurk, who apparently was calmly handing out life belts to the passengers, and she was seen to do this until she had none left, and that left none for herself, but she seemed completely unfazed by that and went off to offer words of comfort to another group of passengers further along the deck. So, yeah, quite often the stewardesses come out of these things very well. They, uh, they perform heroically under terrifying circumstances. But what was her fate? Well, she was last seen clinging to a raft as the boats were cleared, so she got away alive, that was known. But at first, she um, she seemed to have as good a chance as anyone else of making it, and we'll return to her fate shortly. We'll um, take a break, um, John, and come back as we continue the story of the Alingamite. It's it struck the shore, the rocks of the Three Kings Islands, 1902, and 58 crew and 136 passengers aboard. And there are plenty of tales of heroism and plenty of suffering as well to come. Sort of uh, two distinct sides to the story. The Rig of the Alingamite with John McChrystal when we come back. Shipwreck Tales with John McChrystal. This week, the Alingamite, 1902, Three Kings Islands, in dense fog, suddenly found itself at the base of the cliffs of one of the Three Kings Islands and smash. Propeller, rudder gone, and a scramble for the lifeboats and already heroism from one of the stewardesses who handed out the, the life rings to passengers not giving one to herself. But from here... It seems as though there are two distinct fates for the passengers. What happened next is they got the lifeboats clear, and all of them were cleared relatively successfully, but one of them capsized pretty much immediately. So the first boat to, to be got away was manned by the third mate, or commanded by the third mate, and the captain ordered him to sail for New Zealand, presumably because he wanted rescue to come from that direction as soon as possible. 
very rational decision there, one expects. The other boats were, were cleared in short order and as usual you get these, these stories both of miraculous rescue and, and just awful luck really. There was a fellow called Mr Neil who put his wife and his daughter aboard a boat and then he, as they watched horrified he was washed overboard uh, and they didn't know what had happened to him. There was another woman by the name of Mrs Hugo who was put into a boat and her elderly mother was with her and several attempts were, put, were made to put uh, the mother in the same boat, but she couldn't do it for whatever reason, and uh, she was held back for another boat, and she was not seen again. The captain stayed with the ship until everyone had abandoned, and uh, he was apparently washed overboard. He but did he the clean. captain but thing. He did the captain thing. He, he did the captain thing, and it's amazing these guys did the captain thing. It's pretty rare at this day and age anyway, the period we're talking to read of a shipwreck where the captain sort of waved goodbye to his passengers and saved himself. They all stayed with their ship. Their responsibility once everyone was off was ended and they could then look to their own safety. But yeah, Captain Atwood was washed from his deck and then he was picked up by a boat and was then seen by other passengers to be directing the, the rescue of women and children from the water. Yeah, as we've seen, the number six lifeboat capsized upon launch Apparently there was wreckage in the water at this point and uh, she struck some of that and, and was knocked over. But all of those aboard were picked up by the number two lifeboat. So we ended up with number two lifeboat with 52 people aboard. One elderly woman who was rescued from the water died very shortly afterwards. Yeah. Number six lifeboat sailed for Cape Maria Van Diemen, which is the southwestern extremity of the North Island, but she couldn't find it. She didn't have any compass and she, she was still, as we've mentioned, in thick fog. So she sailed for the better part of 25 hours and then eventually fetched up on a sandy beach, which turned out to be well down the coast, the east coast, at Hohora. So she came, came ashore there at about 12.30pm on Monday the 10th. Good. So, yeah, that's a long, weird way. That's a weird place to end up, isn't it? It, is, it is. On the other side it, of the it, coast. That's right. The, the mate who was in charge sailed a very rational course. He, he knew, no doubt, that the greatest danger facing him if he were to sail south from the Three Kings was missing the North Island altogether yeah. and finding himself on the West Coast, which is a hideous coast, yeah. small boat. So he sailed east and then set a course south, and I guess they were fortunate not to, to just keep coasting the East Coast and, and Miss landmass and rescue for a few days. Mm. But yeah, they fetched up at Hohora, which is a couple of hundred kilometres south of North Cape. And they, they were very well treated and well received by the local Maori, who sent a rider to Manganui, which was the nearest telegraph station. So the news reached Auckland around 8 or 9pm on the 10th of November that the Alingamite had struck in the Three Kings and that 52 were known to be saved and everyone else was missing. So that's well over 100 people were thought to be in dire danger. Yeah. And for, as, as we've mentioned, each of these shipwreck stories has its own character. And I guess this one's fog. And what's happening here is news is emerging slowly from the fog about what's happened to people. So 52 have emerged from that fog of, of ignorance. And uh, yeah, they're alive and well. And they had some pretty amazing stories to tell, really. And we'll, we'll come back to those quite shortly. Just for a moment, I'd like to talk about what it must have been like for the relatives of those who were coming on the Alingamite hearing this news. The Auckland Star seems to have been the first recipient of the news, and they claimed they used all channels to, 
to get this news known around the city. And of course, in those days, you didn't listen to the radio and you didn't turn on the TV to find out what had happened. And so people crowded down to the telegraph office and reading from the newspaper of the day, it said, a few of those more immediately concerned, including relatives and friends of those expected by the steamer, collected at the telegraph office and the audible sobbing of the women and strained faces of the men awaiting news of the husband, wife, child or other near relation made a piteous sight. Mm. You can imagine what an awful weight that must have been. Mm. Yeah, I think we get that image and, and that range of emotion seen these days when planes go missing. That's right. Pe- people go to the airport or people are at the airport expecting an arrival and, yeah, there's just that awful limbo where, yeah. where it's clear that something has happened and no one knows quite how bad. Yeah. So that's what these guys were dealing with. Um, because this, the first port of call for the Alingamite from Sydney was Auckland, most of those who were bound were bound for Auckland. So everyone in Auckland had a vital interest, really, in what was going on with this ship. Tell us um, about Hal Hankinson's story. Yes. Now, lifeboat number six, as soon as they fetched up and as soon as these people came down to Auckland, they began to, to tell their amazing stories. And there's this fellow, Hal Hankinson. He had his wife and two young children with him. He had a young daughter and an even younger child who was only two years old and so he and his wife managed to get the two-year-old into a boat that was successfully launched and got away and then he his wife and his daughter were, were all just collected by a great big sea that swept the deck and smashed into into one of the rails they all managed to stay together they got into the number six lifeboat but as we've seen that that capsized so they're all in the water Hinkinson found himself clinging to his daughter and trying to keep her head above the water and then another passenger dragged his wife over to him, presumably so that they could all drown together. They spent some time actually clinging to a piece of wreckage, something like a large piece of kapok, a mattress or something like that. There were bits of wreckage being flung around in the swell. At one stage, Hinkinson describes having to duck both himself and his daughter under the water to avoid a spar that was sort of launched at them mm. uh, by a big wave. And heartbreakingly, he also describes feeling someone grab his ankle while he's clinging to this piece of kapok and sort of this deathly grip on his ankle for a short time and then the grip loosens and whoever that person was didn't make it. Wow. But out of the mist, the number two lifeboat loomed and both his wife and his daughter and then himself are dragged aboard and are saved. Meanwhile, of course, this boat is still picking up people who are floating on the wreckage. There's a crewman there, young fellow by the name of Lennox, who's got his arm over a box of schnapps of all things. They moved to rescue him, but he yells out, no, 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 leave me, um, pick up everyone else. I'm right for a week here. Much comment on, on the, the bravery of that man who was rescued. Wow, far out. Okay, we'll take another break now and come back and describe in detail the different fates of the survivors of the crew uh, and, and passengers of the Alingamite. John McChrystal and Shipwreck Tales today, The Alingamite, 1902, Three Kings. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Shipwreck Tales with John McChrystal, The Alingamite, 1902, off Northland, Three Kings, or just north of it. 58 crew, 136 passengers. There are some deaths at 
the founding of the boat uh, as soon as it was wrecked on the rocks of the Three Kings. But very different fates for, for one set of people in, in a lifeboat made it to Hohora on the east coast and spread the news of what was happening. But a very different fate for a lot of other people who nonetheless made it into boats, John. Yeah, the, the news eventually reached Auckland that a steamer named the Zealandia was bringing a large number of passengers back. And uh, as soon as she reached Tiritiri Matangi in the Hauraki Gulf, the Auckland Star had dispatched a, a small boat uh, which managed to intercept the ship and they're after the exclusive, of course. And they got their men aboard and they went around interviewing the passengers and sent their stories by, passenger, uh, by carrier pigeon back to Auckland. And so the day after the arrival of the Zealandia, the, the stories were emerging in the paper. And the stories were great. Apparently, just after the, the ship struck, a man in the smoking room by the name of Captain Reed, Captain W. Reed, who worked for the New Zealand Marine Department, sort of leapt to his feet and ran to the bridge. And uh, Captain Atwood told him that he believed he'd hit Big King Island and the Three Kings. Captain Reed knew this area very well, and he said he would take a boat and look for a landing place, which he knew to be around there. And having found it, he would, he would come back and they could begin landing passengers on the island. Captain Atwood readily agreed to that, so Reed jumped in a boat and grabbed a couple of other men and they put as many women and children aboard as they could and then set off for the landing place. They saw another boat in the process which looked a bit overloaded and they rendezvoused with it and transferred a bunch of people over and that boat actually fairly shortly afterwards sank but all were rescued. So Reed had this, this very heavily loaded lifeboat and he sailed around the point from the, the, the wreck site and discovered that they weren't on Big King Island at all. He didn't know where he was, but he saw another island looming out of the, list, uh, the mist, so he sailed for that and found, identified at least, a landing place there. It, he had a bit of difficulty sort of working his way up to that landing place, and so he thought he'd have a better chance on yet another island. But remember, there's a chain of islands, little islands, little rocky islands here, and at about 4pm, so he's been in the water for, a, for around five hours rowing this boat with his mates, they managed to get ashore on a rocky ledge at the bottom of a rock pinnacle. And out of the mist, another boat, another lifeboat appeared, and this was the captain's boat, Captain Atwood's boat. And that made for the same spot and landed safely as well. They rigged up a shelter from sails and put life belts down as mattresses and made everyone as comfortable as they could. But bear in mind, they're on a rocky ledge on a, on a pinnacle that's just a rock jutting out of the sea. And there's a big swell running and their boats are not safe. So they keep men in the boats all night just to make sure that if they're washed off, they can be kept safe in the sea. Mm. So the next morning at four o'clock, Captains Atwood and Reed decided they'd go back to the wreck and see if they could find anything in the way of food. Atwood had to turn back pretty quickly when his boat got swamped, so Reed went on alone. While they were on their way back to the, the, the wreck site, a man who had boarded Reed's boat told them that there was a steward that landed on a rock and he'd been trying to look for a safe landing place and they hadn't been able to take him off again. So they told him they'd see him again in the morning. You can imagine what a lonely, cold, despairing kind of wait that must have been for yeah. that poor fellow. Yeah. But we've still got 
uh, I'm, this is kind of good news and the people are very grateful for uh, the enterprise and industry of, uh, of Captain Reed uh, getting them ashore. But we've still got uh, boats and rafts missing, right? That's right, yeah. Well, Reed still had quite a lot of work to do, really. They actually located the rock in probably, as it seems, where the steward had been landed. And they, they floated around for a while and eventually they saw him. And one of Reed's crew leapt in the water and carried a line ashore and they managed to drag the man off the rock. Pretty grateful, I expect. Mm. They rode to the wreck site and they reached it at about 3pm. These guys left at 4am, so it's 11 hours rowing against the wind and tide. They couldn't find anything except a case of gin, which might have boosted morale somewhat, some oranges and some onions. Uh, apparently they saw lots of bodies and life rings floating around in the vicinity and apparently that upset Reed's crew pretty badly. Pretty exhausted men by that stage. They attempted to reach their original landing place where they'd landed everyone else and those people saw them pop out of the mist, try to get to their landing place, give up the attempt and disappear again. Uh, and apparently that caused quite a lot of consternation ashore. But they decided, again, Reed knew the area pretty well and by this stage he had a fair idea that Big King Island was somewhere to the east of him. So they rode in that direction and managed to raise Big King Island and get ashore on the landing place he'd originally intended to reach. They found a raft full of people there. One of the rafts had made it. So concerted effort was made between Reed's crew and the raft's crew to try to find some goats, which he knew to be on the island, and to look for the opportunity to go back the next day to rejoin everyone else. Before they managed to do that, the Zealandia hove out of the mist and picked up everyone sort of piecemeal from the various spots where they'd been landed on Big King and this other island. Mm. So I believe there were 80-odd survivors who were picked up there, which was a great result, really. But there are still people at sea. You're right. What's happened now is once the Zealandia has reached Auckland, um, there's still that sort of mist over events, and uh, one of the life-saving vessels, a raft, is still missing and also a lifeboat. So just slowly in dribs and drabs, good reports are coming through, but the longer we're going, the less hope there is for everyone else who's still missing. Incredibly, one of the ships that's now searching frantically for survivors, the HMS Penguin, finds a raft with eight living people and, f and eight dead people at 4pm on Thursday. So this is about five days after the shipwreck. Mm. 66 miles east-northeast east of the wreck site. Wow, so that, that's heading nowhere. It's heading absolutely into the void. Next stop, Fiji, really. There's just, yeah. What a piece, we, we, that's yeah. incredible luck that they actually found them in all the vastness of the ocean. We're not in the age of Orion sweeps or um, emergency locator beacons or anything like that. This mm. was a needle in a haystack and uh, these guys were found. Apparently they were in appalling condition, as you can imagine. And Mrs McGurk, who we last saw heroically handing out life rings to, to passengers, was aboard this raft, but she died the night before they were picked up. Oh. Uh, exposure was too much. And this um, is a die, die of thirst and exposure and that sort of thing? Thirst and exposure, yep. They're absolutely brutally exposed to the um, the elements. In fact, I'll read a short extract from the newspaper that the, um, the Auckland Star ran. As the penguin arrived back in Auckland, the raft was, was clearly visible, sort of lashed to, to the railing. And this is how it was described. The structure, about 12 feet long by 7 or 8 feet wide, 
consisted of narrow wooden battens nailed longitudinally between two long, round, canvas-covered floats. It didn't take much imagination to imagine the condition of 16 people on that frail raft. They must have been half-submerged nearly all the time and had no shelter from the wind or rain or sun. Every wave must have washed over them and every motion of the ever-moving ever platform must have buried them. There could have been no rest on its narrow boards, night or day, and to add to this, days and nights of hunger and thirst, cold and fatigue, sickness and helplessness, when full of their sufferings. Poor buggers. This, um, yeah, this is just a, a hunk of floating stuff, really. It is. All these it, it is. It, it, it's like being at sea in an inner tube, really. Uh, so, yeah, there were, there were 16 of them originally. Uh, some died of exposure. Two men by the name of Muirhead and Pretty on the Wednesday night, apparently through drinking seawater or just through thirst, just completely lost it and they jumped overboard to end their suffering. There's a pretty common refrain in these, these survivor stories, yeah. or in their case, not survivor stories. Mm. Poor old Muir, Muirhead had a wife and child in Sydney. The only provisions that they had on this raft was, believe it or not, two apples. <laughs> Some idea of how awful this must have been is the first apple was divided into 16 pieces on Tuesday night and then the second the following morning. Of course, they were rescued that day, but they had no way of knowing that they were to be. Yeah. The piece of good news here is when they picked up, we mentioned a man named Neil who'd loaded his wife and daughter on a boat and then been seen, seen to be washed washed off the, mm. the wreck. Yeah. Neil was one of the survivors. Wow. Some people don't recover from this sort of thing was was he were they okay yeah all eight of the survivors pulled through apparently which is as you say a good result because the newspaper men who saw them in the chart room aboard the hms penguin mm. were shocked by their appearance they were trying to get information from them but the doctors were pretty adamant that they should be allowed to rest mm. and these guys were just beyond speech anyway but most of them could be very little more than groan Apparently heart-rending scenes where crew members, when, when they docked in Auckland, crew members who had been rescued in the earlier lifeboat or, or had come in on the Zealandia went aboard the Penguin to try to find out who was alive and who was dead. And, yeah, needless to say, the guys on the raft were, were keen for information and most of the news they were receiving wasn't good. OK, here we have another example of some people in desperate straits reporting that a steamer went past and didn't pick them up yeah now i put reading that i just began to wonder whether this is it's such a common thing in these castaway things that you begin to wonder whether hallucinations come into the picture somewhere yeah it seems unthinkable to me that given it was common knowledge at the stage on both sides of the tasman that the alinkamite had been wrecked in this vicinity any ship sailing in this vicinity must have known that there was the chance of finding survivors or at least at least bodies supposedly one man well several passengers claimed to have seen the this vessel passing and one man claimed that it even lowered a boat which came towards them and then stopped turned around and went back they're on this raft thing that's barely floating with waves over the top of them five days a, a week out there and and that is the group that see this boat that's right that's right it, it just beggars belief that anyone could have approached and then and then gone gone away again. And so I do begin to wonder whether it's just the mind playing tricks. But it's several uh, of the occupants reported this. Yes, yes, yeah. 
Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Again, it would be interesting to to check shipping records and see what's likely to have been in the area. And yeah, and yeah, it it would be interesting to know. Well, sickening, yeah. isn't it? If it is true, <laughs> it is. Mm. But meanwhile, of course, we've still got a lifeboat missing. Right, the boat to be got away was the third mate's boat, and that was under orders to sail for, for New Zealand. Two or three of the other boats actually sighted this boat at various points just after the shipwreck, and she was in good order. It was considered to be the most seaworthy of the lifeboats, and it was well-provisioned. Third mate was considered to be a very competent sailor, and it was well-manned, not overloaded. So she had absolutely every chance of making it, as far as anyone could tell. But as time went on, no trace of this, this ship was was uh, sorry, this boat was found. And because there was a concerted uh, search for it, because they knew it was missing. There was a very concerted search. The penguin was searching for the lifeboat when she happened on the raft. And significantly or not, the wreckage of the lifeboat was found around the raft. So the strong suspicion has to be that she was wrecked shortly after she'd got clear of the Alingamite and her wreckage drifted at roughly the same rate that the raft drifted. Um, you know, I made- hope... I hope that's the case because otherwise it's one of those stories of long, slow, painful suffering, death, that, Absolutely. of which there are many of those stories that can never be told. Exactly right. One of the theories is that they, again, having no compass, sailed down the wrong side of the North Island and found themselves on the West Coast. But no evidence has ever been found to suggest that's true. It's more likely she was capsized in the early hours after the, after the wreck and the end was pretty swift. As you say, that's sort of what you've got to hope for. Mm. Shipwreck Tales with John McChrystal, The Wreck of the Alingamite, 1902. The aftermath of the wreck and a summary of the situation with John McChrystal when we return. You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Shipwreck Tales this week, The Wreck of the Alingamites, with our shipwreck tale teller, John McChrystal. We've seen heroism, we've seen tragedy, we've seen a a great amount of endeavour to save people. A lot of it successful, but a huge amount of suffering for the few on the raft and one of the boats, of course. uh, We don't really know what happened to them, but hopefully drowned early. What was the final death toll? The final death toll was 38, which considering where she was wrecked, the conditions and just those miraculous rescues at sea, yeah, it could have been so much higher. It could have been so much worse. This was a a real bullet dodged in many ways. There was an inquiry. The captain survived and uh, has to face an inquiry. That's right. And, yeah, pretty much everyone was loud in their praise of Atwood and the way he conducted himself after the wreck. But the Court of Inquiry couldn't get past the fact that they had in reasonably reasonably favourable conditions just run smack into an island, which a skilled navigator ought not to do, needless to say. And the other thing they criticised him for, or that they, they focused on, was the failure of the ship to go into reverse as soon as the danger was sighted. So, yeah, that's where the attention was focused. Yeah... The, the failure of the ship to go astern seems to be fairly readily explained by damage to the propeller because many people who were competent to judge said that they definitely heard the command given, the engine telegraph was rung for full astern, and yet the ship didn't respond. 
So that's a strong indicator that something had been fouled up with the drivetrain, really, somewhere mm. along the line. Okay. So, yep, not his fault. However, they decided that they couldn't really rule on that one, but what they could rule on was just this incontrovertible fact that everyone knew where the Three Kings were, they were on his chart, and yet he managed to find them with his ship. Yeah. And so he was found to have been grossly negligent, and that was the end of his career, so it seemed. A few years later, on a marine survey, it was discovered that the Three Kings had actually been chartered quite significantly out of position. Oh, dear. Uh, and when this news arrived in New Zealand, of course, the, the immediate call was for, for the inquiry to be reopened, and needless to say, he was fully exonerated. The years of shame are something awful to contemplate because he must have been asking himself how it happened. And yeah, and the weight of the, the weight of all those deaths, uh, let alone the suffering. Absolutely, absolutely right. Yeah. But yes, he, he lived lived to be exonerated, and uh, he apparently lived out a, a pretty successful career as a well-respected surveyor, marine surveyor in Wellington. Which, um, with, with a hell of a story to tell. Yeah, yeah, mm. absolutely. And yes, just his name clear, which yeah. is which is the, the best part. Because of the gold on board, people have had a bit of a scoop around there. Wade Doak. That's exactly right. Some of our, our great treasure hunters, the, the real characters of the New Zealand item scene, notably Wade Doak and Kelly Tarleton, they went up there and located the Alingamite, which proved that she'd struck the West King, the westernmost of that group of islands. And they they did quite an effective salvage of a very difficult site. I've seen footage of them, actually. They, they go down in their fairly antique-looking diving gear, and they're just literally scooping coins up off the bottom of the sea. It's, it's boys' own treasure hunting, really. It's not the, mm. the painstaking chipping it out of the rock kind of stuff. It's, it's yeah, picking it up off the bottom of the sea and putting it in your bag. Mm. So, yeah, there's still reputedly quite a lot of gold, quite a, quite a bit of silver there. Quite remarkably, I've heard that some of the coins, including gold, which is very heavy, has been found halfway up the cliff adjacent to the wreck site, which gives some indication of the ferocity of the sea there at times. Wow. Halfway up the cliff, gold. Yeah. That usually so sinks to the bottom. That's why they pan for it. That's right. That's unbelievable. So, so a wave has come and just churned up the sea bottom to such yeah. an extent that it, it's just flipped these coins up mm. up. The, the, the rock face above. And botanically, uh, the wreck of the Alingamite is commemorated. A very rare plant only exists in the wild on the Three Kings. And that's not a big spot, but it's, it's biologically significant area. Alingamite Johnsonii. And you can then get one from a garden centre if you like. Yeah, it's a bit like the Kardaka, apparently. Uh, I've not seen one that I'm aware of, but mm. I think I'm going to go out and find one and plant it. Yeah, go on. Lovely red berries if it goes well, and uh, an exceedingly rare plant. But yeah, in the wild, of course, but it seems to grow happily in gardens. Yes. A fascinating story. Grim, tragic, but lots of heroism as well. And a good way to end with the exoneration of a captain who seemed to act... Honourably, E.B. Atwood. Thank you very much, John McChrystal. Thank you for all these great tales. Thanks, Brian.
Well, there we go. Another one formerly missing from the Shipwreck Tales archive will be back up there uh, within 24 hours. Do visit it. There are, there's an amazing array of tales just like that from John McChrystal. We do thank him very, very much. Uh, Smithies will return eventually. Uh, tomorrow evening, I've got an interview with an expert on human parasites. It was just an idea I had. I thought this might be interesting. It may very well be a salutary tale of careful what you wish for, Graham. Um, there's a warning on the webpage. I try and put videos up that are complementary and, and add a little bit of information and insight to what we're talking about. Why not? Because we can. Um, and I can't unwatch these things. I really thought, nah, we shouldn't put these up. But in the spirit of openness of the internet, hello Facebook, hello YouTube, hello Twitter, in the spirit of openness in the, of um, the internet, it's got a warning there, don't click if you're squeamish. <sighs> it's a fascinating chat anyway. The, he's Professor Graham Legros from the Manahan Institute of Medical Research. And, oh, my word, they do great, great work. I had no idea the level of suffering and hobbling of societies. They just can't get ahead. Because damn things are eating them. Something that didn't make the interview uh, tomorrow... I'm just going to play you now. I'll give you a, a bit of an idea how entertaining, I suppose, uh, maybe the words Professor Graham Legros is. And this is about a thing called Toxoplasma gondii. Gosh, that's a big fat word uh, for a very, very tiny bug thing. Here he goes. Uh, just talk about malaria. In the same strain, um, they're called protozoan parasites. Um, there's, there's something called Toxoplasma. And it's been given a bit of brief recently because we've just learned how... It, it's a very common parasite. It's very promiscuous. Um, it's cats, when we have, play in our poos, everyone says, oh, we need to get dirtier. Well, not in the cat poo, because they shed this toxoplasma. It can get it in sheep. We have a thing of vaccine for the sheep. But anyway, it, normal host is a mouse. And what it does, it blows up into the brain and makes the mouse more brave instead of being timid. And then the mouse will get caught by the cat. The cat loves to eat the brain. Notice that? nice and fatty mm. and then it gets the toxoplasma and starts the whole infection cycle so your cat eating the mouse's head catches the, this toxoplasma but we can be accidental hosts and it can children can be accidental hosts and it's actually something to watch for in our community there's also something that's supposed to be affecting the poor old porpoises off the coast of taranaki what yes I, I, i'm not an ecologist and i but i've just read about this and i was just shocked because it's so indiscriminate who it infects, this toxoplasma, it seems to be able to get any mammal that infects the epithelial cells. Far out. And does it change our behaviour like it does the mice? Well, I, I probably we deal with it. Um, it, it could do. I, 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 it's just hard to do a, a measured trial. No one wants to volunteer for that trial. <laughs> <laughs> there he is, Professor Graham Legros from the Manahan Institute. The full interview about human parasites and, unfortunately, some complimentary videos on the weekend Variety Wireless webpage. The interview's going to be tomorrow around about the... Oh... 9.30 mark. Yeah, 9.30 mark. Uh, another heads up. Um, there were going to be these speakers, and I kind of... I really do rate 
their work. I think they're brave. Uh, Sam Harris, Majid Nawaz, uh, you, you may have heard of them. Uh, Eric Weinstein. They're going to come to New Zealand, but that got cancelled. I think because they were charging 600 freaking dollars. But one of the outfit that was going to come was Douglas Murray. He is speaking, and he's going to be having a strong debate. He gets up on his hind legs and makes some very good points, but the contrary, uh, it, it will be addressed as well. Now, this is this Friday. Douglas Murray at the Auckland University of Technology. A lot of these sort of things happening and people getting upset about them. Oh, dear. Here's a little taste of Douglas Murray, if you've not heard of him, talking about um, how overly sensitive and strident university campuses have become. The amazing question which hovers over Yale University is why do the adults sit and take it? Somebody needs to say to the shrieking girl who's effing and blinding at her professor, you know what? You're not at a home. This is not a home for you. It's a university. It's a very different thing. And what's more, if you cannot cope with Halloween costumes, then you've got no place at a university because you're going to have no chance of dealing with quantum physics or Shakespeare or Heidegger if Halloween spooks you out this much. <laughs> you're a useless person and you're going to go into a useless career because if you're a lawyer and you have gone to Yale but you're too sensitive to hear about rape cases, you're not going to be able to represent anyone in a court of law. So you're no use for the law. You're no use for literature because you might read a novel which will trigger you. You're no use for the sciences. You're no use for anything. They should be telling the kids to grow up. Right, there he is, Douglas Murray. I forget the name of his adversary. Pardon me, it's just not in front of me. He's quite famous too. Um, but that will be... He is on. This coming Friday, August the 17th, at the Auckland University of Technology. I don't think there are other dates. Have a great evening, everybody. Another weekend variety wireless tomorrow evening from 8pm. Overnight talkback. We'll keep you company and entertained. 0800 844 747.